material of some of these sacrificial animals and rub their face in it and then send them out with the garbage. You know, that's pretty strong, don't you think? You wouldn't necessarily expect God to be quite that graphic about that. But that's how God feels about these priests. They are just despicable. They're repulsive to God. And he'd like for them to be so defiled that they just get taken out to the place where they where they, where they dump the, the garbage from, from the animals. That, that's what God's saying he wants to do with these priests. I get the impression he wasn't very happy with them. <laughs> now, what he does is he goes back and he talks about the original covenant and purpose of God for the priests. You look at verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in, it, when it was in his mouth. Unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of the priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. There's how God set up the priestly office. What were they supposed to do? Teach how? Teach what? 
instruction. Yeah. Give them the true message of God. Teach accurately. And how were they supposed to live? Yeah. They were supposed to speak and live pure, righteous, faithful lives to God. That was the whole idea with the covenant you made with Levi. You know, what happens when what we teach is false? What happens when the way we live is false? You know, God had standards for his priests. That's what they were supposed to do. They had a responsibility to teach the law faithfully and live it. But look at verse 8. But as for you, you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by the instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi. Do you see what they've done? They've gone aside from the path. They're not following the Lord's way correctly. They are teaching things that are wrong. They're causing people to actually stumble because of what they're teaching. They're, they're, they're teaching things that are false. And they're corrupting the covenant of Levi. They've used the Lord for their own personal gain. And the Lord's found out their charade and he won't put up with it anymore. They are not being faithful priests living up to the calling that God had given to the priests. Their life and their teaching was not what God wanted to do. Do you see any application to us? I just, I kind of, this entire book so far has been just reminding me of like, um, a, a parent that um, scolds his child. You know, that he does something wrong. It's like he knows so much better. Why is he doing this? And I can just, I can just picture, you know, being scolded many times myself. That I'm just sitting there, like, oh great, I get another lesson. I'm just gonna sit here and wander off and dawdle. And he's sitting here and he's. He's telling them everything that he's gone, you know, that they've done wrong. And it even seems like, like they're questioning, they're like, when have we done this? Like, talking back. And then once chapter 2 starts, it's like, that's the point where God just, like, snaps. And he's like, you're not getting it. It's like, you guys have been doing this. It's like, you don't take it to heart. It's like, I'm going to curse you. It's like, because, it's like, you don't get it. Exactly. Right. No, I may not be a parent, but I'm student teaching right now. <laughs> and the thing that annoys me the most about the kid is, hopefully this doesn't offend anybody, but the kid that goes. And then when you go, don't smack, you know, don't smack them and get on to them about it. They go, what? I didn't do anything. <laughs> I can only imagine as a parent like that, what? It wasn't, you know, by the way, for anyone who doesn't know, we're dating, so he knows me. But, um, <laughs> just in case. Better watch. <laughs> but, um, I mean, just that we didn't do anything wrong at all. Like, it's so... How can you say that? <laughs> and that's exactly what they did all through this book. It was constantly, oh, oh, me? Oh, about me? You know, we ever do that? The defensive... And like, well, you shouldn't have told me that. I don't have any problem with those things. I'm doing fine. 
think about, you know, we've got a responsibility to teach properly, not to twist the message. And we've got a responsibility to live it right. You know, I mean, we're influencing other people. God's trying to use us as his instruments to bring other people to him. Are we bringing other people to him or are we causing them to stumble? By either what we teach or by how we live or both. We've got a responsibility to live up to. You know, what if people followed what you do? Where would they be spiritually? Precisely why Jesus told them not to, to be aware of the weapon of the Pharisees. You know, what they say is right, but don't follow their example. Yeah, we got both sides of that sometimes. Sometimes you've got the example, sometimes you got the teaching, sometimes you got both. But both are concerns of God. I think it's funny that whenever somebody's confronted with a problem that they have, uh, whether it's in the Bible or in real life, if you want to go to that person, they, they try to justify their actions. They, or they try to, they try to uh, speak in a manner that, that they can get themselves off the hook for doing what they've been doing. And like these priests are sitting there being like, well, what have we done this? It's like, we're, we're not doing anything wrong. What have we done this? They're saying this to God. Like, God doesn't know. You know, that they've been doing these things wrong. It's, I just, I find it funny that they, they're trying to talk to God and say, no, wait, hold on, you got to understand, it's not like that. He knows. You know, they, there's no there's no excuse big enough to to turn the, the anger of God away if you deserve it. Absolutely. A little dose of honesty might be good. You know, admitting where we're at. I mean, it's not going to help them with God for them to keep trying to defend themselves and claim they're okay. Do you think they're going to convince God? Other thoughts? Yes. Uh, You know, I think in verse 1, it's something I... It's one of those... I've seen my Bible... It's one of those non-dumb moments. Um, But I've seen my Bible, I was looking at... I think it was 1 Peter... And I, I was having to teach it somewhere. I was having to teach a study or, or talk to people about it. And, and I started looking at passages. Well, what can I say to help someone? Or what can I say to make this make sense? And it just kind of hit me. Now wait, hold on. Why am I not applying this to myself first? Right. I think that's a temptation for people that are in the teaching or preaching or even just reading the Bible. It's not, well, how can I learn the Bible? But what does it mean for me? And I think a lot of times I missed that. And it was more of a moment I was like, well, that was stupid of me. What are you thinking? But I think sometimes we miss that. It, it's not, this is a nice book that we have to study to get closer to God. Why? To apply to ourselves in the grill. Sure. But it always worries me when there are people that every time you ask them, how are you really doing? How are you doing spiritually? I'm fine. I'm good. Always. They're always good. Because I think sometimes in that, we're just not taking seriously the mistakes we're making. You know, it's just too easy for us to say, hey, everything's great. Yeah, I'm doing great. No problem. That's what they thought. You know, they were always doing great. And God was sick of They were not seeing their true condition. Say. These verses really remind me of Zephaniah chapter 1. 
where in verse 4, he said, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from the place, the names of the idolatrous priests or the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oath to the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, those who have turned back and fallen the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor cried of him. This is what he is saying to the priests who are, who are offering sacrifices to him, but also to like God. This is before the captivity. So not much has seemed to change. They're not offering to the idols anymore. They're definitely not offering to the Lord. So this captivity that he seems to have brought them to doesn't seem to have changed these people as much as he would have hoped, which brings on the new covenant, which we'll see in the next one. Sure, it's disappointing when we read in Malachi to realize how far they still are away from what God expects, even after the captivity. That's a good point. Other thoughts? Um, to kind of go off of what Shane just said, what he said we can, I mean, know Scripture all we want. I mean, this, uh, my old friend who brought me to the Lord, he was a Baptist, but was a member of the Lord's Church for a while and brought me to the church and during that time. And, and then he fell away, and then he came back, but he came back with this Calvinistic idea, you know, and, like, and he, he was a person who had original membership from him, you know, and stuff, but, um, but he, uh, what happened, I realized that I felt like he, he, I mean, he knew what Scripture said, you know what I mean? And, and there's a thing where we can know what Scripture says, but he totally distorted it and took a context to mean different things and what it really means, you know? And, uh, and I feel like there's a difference between knowing what the Scripture says and then understanding it, you know what I mean, and being able to apply it properly. And um, I felt a lot of times like he was trying to make, by what the Bible said, he was trying to make it, the Bible fit his life instead of making his life fit the Bible, you know what I'm saying? And like he was like, oh, well, it says this. And I'm like, you know that's not what it means. You know what I mean? So he he was saying, well, I can do this because the scripture says this. And I mean, and he would actually use what the scripture said, but you gotta be in, you gotta know when someone's taking out of context. Or not, you know what I mean? So uh, we just gotta make sure that we have that understanding there too, not just to know what it says, but what it means. You know what it says. So. Good point. I agree. Other thoughts? Okay, how about uh, 10 to 16? Now, I think he's moved on maybe from the priests to dealing with some things that aren't just the priests, but really the nation as a whole. So 10 to 16. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against each other, each, against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and and a bond of the nation has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awaits and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with a favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But no one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking about the offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no, no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate the voice, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, say, says the Lord of Moses. 
So take heed to your spirit that you do not yield to your So what's the adverb of choice in that passage? Keeps using over and over again. Treacherously. Treacherously. <laughs> Have that over and over. What does it mean to be treacherous? Sometimes we use that in more than one sense. Devious. Devious. Betraying. Yeah. That's the idea of betraying. Not being loyal, not being faithful, not not you know, living up to the standards that you ought to have. That's his idea here. They have been treacherous against the Lord, first of all. They betrayed God, but they've been betrayed their brothers. And it's a little harder to understand the points that he's making and the things that they are doing wrong here. Think about what he's saying about their treacherous tre- treachery against God. In verse 11, what were they doing? Yes! Marrying uh, pagan women who worship other gods. What did the Lord think about that? Remember what the law was? They were not allowed to do that. They were prohibited from marrying foreign women. Now the point of that was not an ethnic thing. They could actually marry women who had been converted. But marrying with people who were pagans. And that's what they were doing in this period. Now that's not a big surprise. Look at Ezra, look at Nehemiah. We know that was a big issue in the time after they came back from captivity. That they'd marry those women that they had no right to be married to. As he says, um, he's married the daughter of a foreign god. You know, these were, these were committed idolaters that they were marrying. And God was not pleased with them for doing that. And that caused God not to bless them. Now look at verse 13. What were they doing with the altar of God? Weeping over it. Why? Because they were upset because God wasn't accepting their sacrifice. Yes! They were so grieving the fact that all they were doing in the Lord wasn't having any effect. You know, they, they just don't understand why God is not blessing them, why he's not accepting their offerings and their, their weeping and wailing. God, why aren't you accepting what we're doing? What was their problem? They weren't doing what was right by God's standards. And they refused to realize that. Do you see that? You know, their problem was they weren't, you know, serving God faithfully. No wonder he wasn't accepting their offerings. Now there's another thing they were doing. You say, for what reason? Well, verse 14, this idea of marrying these pagan women, I think was accompanied by another big issue in verses 14 to 16. What were they doing? Divorcing their wives. Yes! They were divorcing their wives to marry these pagan women. (laughs) Now, how does God feel about divorce? He hates it. Yeah, he hates it. And so, they were being treacherous against the marriage covenant they made. When I got married, I promised that I would stay with Sandra 
for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, and all that kind of stuff, until death do us part. Now, what if I divorce her? What have I proven? You're a liar. I'm a liar. I'm not a man of my word. I said I'd do something I didn't do. When we marry, we're making a covenant, a commitment. I'll stay with you and I'll be faithful to you until you die. And then, eh, get rid of that one and try another one. See if she pleases me anymore. Think about today. Why do people get divorced? He doesn't have a big enough house. They're not big enough house. Bigger house. Yeah, they don't love each other anymore. That's a big one. What should you do if you don't love each other anymore? Do what? Yeah, change, repent. Do we have an option about loving each other? The truth of the matter is, God said we're supposed to even love our enemies. So, uh, you know, that surely would include your wife. <laughs> you know, think, think about the kind of questions people ask when they get ready to get a divorce. You know, thinking about getting a divorce and they're saying, well, do you think I'd be happier if I weren't married? Do you think I could make a living by myself? Well, do you think it'd be better for the kids if they weren't here in this fussing and feuding all the time? What question do we ever seem to ask? Is it God's will? Yes! How will God feel about this? That doesn't seem to be the question. We're all thinking about our happiness and what would be more convenient and all that. God says, you're, he hates divorce. He hates this idea that we make a commitment that we don't follow through on. Now, it does make a good bit of difference, the attitude that I have in my marriage. You know, can you see what a difference it makes if you think, well, if this doesn't work out, we'll just go ahead and get a divorce. Versus, I'm not going to divorce no matter what, so i got to make the best of it. Now what happens if you think, well, eh, we'll try it. What happens if there's some problems? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's not much incentive to work them out. It's easier just to just throw that one out and try again. You know, you don't you don't have a commitment. You know, when you are absolutely determined, we promise we are going to stay together. <laughs> it may be rocky, but we're not divorcing. That's not an option. Well, you work them out. You do whatever you have to do, or you live with them. But you don't say, "Ah, this isn't. I, I'm not happy." Who cares? <laughs> God didn't create us to be happy. He created us to be faithful to serve. So comments and questions, yes? I think it just kind of shows how selfish we can be as, a, as people. Like, we get so caught up in what we have going on and what's what's wrong in our lives that, that we get so blinded by that God is completely out of the picture. Because yeah. we don't even think about it. I mean, and that's a problem. We need to think about him, like, all the time. Like, it's what I'm doing, whether it's getting divorced or, or anything else. Is this going to please him? Is this going to, you know, just show, show my love for him? And it's just really obvious that 
a lot of people can be really selfish and they just You're don't right. think about it. You know, when we think about, uh, you know, you're talking about people going in marriage, like, like, and then the, the convenience comes along, well, we just, it don't work out, you know, we'll just get divorced, or it'll be easier to get divorced and not to deal with the songs. And, you know, it would have been easier for Jesus, I'm sure, if he could stay in heaven and come tie for us, you know what I mean? And if, uh, and, but because he loved us so much, you know, he came in and did that for us. And uh, I think that, I mean, to think, you know, when we're not getting along with a spouse or something or our spouse, you know, isn't anything right to us, uh, I mean, I don't know. But, uh, but, you know, it's like, it's like us doing, not doing right to the Lord, you know. He still, he loves us so much. He died for those of us that weren't even alive yet, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's just... It, it's just silly to think that we can't deal with our problems here in this life when, I mean, Jesus left perfection to come to die for us. You know what I mean? And it's just, if he can handle that, we can... Nobody ever said everything was going to be easy. Now, I'll tell you one practical thing from that, and just in, in practical terms, if I know that when I make this covenant of marriage, I'm going to stay with that person until I die. It would be very wise to give some serious thought before I get married. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, and think about some of what you're committing yourself to. I mean, I think that's important. Not to make a commitment that's so serious before you've thought about what that implies. And uh, I remember listening to a sermon years and years ago. And, and basically, he said in the sermon, you don't have to get married. But if you do get married, here's what it means. And he said, you know, we sing for better or for worse. But we only think about for better, and we never really stop and think about the for worse. He said, what happens, for example, if, you know, you get married, and three months later, your wife's in a car wreck. She becomes a vegetable. You know, she's not able to perform sexually. She's no companionship. You know, she's in a nursing home, or whatever. Or she's at home, but she takes care and she can't really be what you want her to be. And what do you do? That could happen. Now think about both sides of that. Isn't it cool to know that my wife will always be there for me? No matter what. No matter how tragic the circumstances, she would not abandon me. Because she's a Christian, and she's going to do what's right. That's really comforting. But it means I'm making the same commitment back. I'm making a commitment that no matter what happens, no matter how bad it is, no matter how little I'm getting out of this compared to what I was expecting, I'm committing myself. So often we marry for what we think we can get instead of for what we want to give. And it's so much better to marry because we love the person and we want to serve them and give to them. When our first thought when we get married is, what, what am I getting out of? It's going to be much harder to have a right attitude. We ought to think about what can I give. We ought to marry because we want what's best for you, not because we're wanting all these things for us. And we, we finally got a girl that we like that's going to give us all this attention and do what we want. That should not be our focus. So I think this is a really practical thing. They were marrying the foreign women and divorcing their lawful wives in order to do that. Comments and thoughts? How long was this after Ezra? We don't know for sure, but I'd say 25 years probably. You know, that's just a lesson to us that it doesn't, you know, at that time of Ezra, you had them all 
pouring their heart, you know, tearing their clothes and upset that they had done this. And then 25 years later, they didn't again. Exactly. And even in Nehemiah's day, 13 years after Ezra, they were having some of the same problems again. It doesn't take long, you know. It's easy to repent and then go right back to the same problems. You know, that's why you can never say, well, I've got that one. Like, I'm, I'm done. I've got that one. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. Jake? Yeah, can you do me a favor and can you at least go through some of the timeline? Yeah, they came back from captivity in about 538. They finished the temple in about 516. The story of Esther is either side of 480. Then in 458, Ezra came back. In 445, Nehemiah came back. And he was back again in the early 40s, in the late 430s, like 432 or something like that. And it was probably in that general range when Malachi was written. There's really no way to pin down Malachi. I mean, uh, I don't know if I've even got it. Yeah, this, this says, uh, my Bible, 433 to 430. Uh, that's more precise than what we can really give, but that's about right. Uh, so. Other comments or questions? As is so common throughout Scripture, God's here using, I think, using marriage as, you know, just as the priests have held in regard and esteem their responsibilities to the Lord, you know, the people aren't holding in esteem or regard for their marriage covenant, you know. God is all the time using marriage as the image of the relationship with his people. And here, they're getting divorces among the persons just to say, as they divorced their first love of the Lord. Exactly. Their treachery against God was reflected in their treachery against each other. They were people who weren't people of their word. Say. And it makes sense what you do. If you lay through the Lord's law, if you lay through anything else's law. Amen. That's the foundation of everything. So I mean, how can you expect to have a good marriage or even a good social, I mean, almost like a, a social relationship with anyone without having a first relationship with the Lord? Um, everything is offset. You're exactly right. All right, why don't we take a break here for uh, 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll uh, work on the rest of Malachi. And, uh, we're going to see a lot of this same pattern, almost more of it than what we've had, of this, uh, you know, they're raising objections to what the Lord says, and they're really feeling like that the Lord is not dealing with them fairly. And uh, this is uh, one of these cases of a really horrendous chapter break, in my judgment. Um, there's always debate about uh, some of those things. But I believe uh, that I'm dividing it up uh, more rationally. So 217 to 36.